ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله خير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار uh, so in the previous lesson we looked at a number of hadith and they put, the first hadith pertained to the issue of iman itself that iman consists of 70 odd branches and the greatest of them is the kalima la ilaha illallah the statement la ilaha illallah and so the state the the point of evidence then from that hadith was that this is the highest branch of iman the loftiest branch of iman and hence this indicates the fadl the virtue of this particular of this kalima likewise we mentioned the hadith in which the messenger of allah sallam as is related from him though it's a daif hadith but the ma'na the meaning can be found in other texts and so here in what is related the messenger of allah sallam he said renew your faith jaddidu imanakum renew your faith and when asked how to do that he said aktiru min qawli la ilaha illallah frequently repeat la ilaha illallah so we explained some benefits that could be taken from that uh, narration and the hadith after that was the statement of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam umirtu an uqatil an-nas hatta yaqulu la ilaha illallah to the end of the hadith i have been ordered to fight back against the people until they say la ilaha illallah to the end of the hadith and we mentioned some benefits that can be taken with respect to that and we spoke a little about the issue of jihad itself and some of the uh, conditions of jihad and some of the shubhat some of the doubts regarding jihad itself so we start today with the next hadith this hadith is hadith number 7 an abi malik an abi سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول من قال لا اله الا الله وكفر بما يعبد من دون الله حرم ماله ودمه وحسابه على الله رواه مسلم from abi malik from his father who said who said he heard the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam say whoever says la ilaha illa allah and disbelieves in whatever is worshiped besides allah then his blood and his wealth become inviolable they become sacred they become inviolable and his reckoning is with allah reported by muslim in his sahih so from this hadith there are a number of benefits that are pointed out here by the author and so the first of those benefits is that the kalima la ilaha illa allah it leads to the protection the sanctity and the inviolability of blood and wealth of blood and wealth and this indicates the greatness of this kalima this is obviously the, the angle of evidence or one of the angles of evidence from 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 this text in the sense that blood and uh, wealth they are inviolable which means that they cannot be violated or transgressed against because they have now become sacred and inviolable by virtue of this of this statement which is a mighty statement so that's the first point and the second point is that what this hadith indicates as well is merely saying la ilaha illallah is not sufficient until and unless one actually disbelieves he disbelieves in everything which is worshiped besides allah and so this here is obviously it is a rejection of the tagut whatever a tagut um 
ومن يكفر بالطاغوت ويؤمن بالله فقد استمسك بالعروة الوثقى that whoever rejects the tagut and believes in Allah then he has held on to the strongest handhold and so tagut as Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah explains that it is that in which the limits have been exceeded the limits have been exceeded with respect to one who is ma'bud worshipped or is matbu' followed or is muta' obeyed so when the limits are transgressed and a person becomes a ma'bud one that is worshipped or one that is matbu' beyond the limits or muta' beyond the limits this now becomes a tawhut and a tawhut can be, the, which is, uh, the translation is a false deity. A tagut is a false deity. And false deities can be very, very many, because by this definition, as you can see from this definition, a person can exceed the limits with respect to anything in the creation. Anything in the creation. However, the scholars make a distinction between, with respect to people, the one who is worshipped but is not pleased that he's worshipped. That he doesn't call people to worship him. Rather the opposite. Like we see many of the, the, the prophets and messengers for example. They call the people to worship Allah alone. But there are people like you see the Nasara and amongst the Yahud and others. Where they actually they, they direct worship to that prophet. To their prophet. And so here we would not say Tawut. Because the one being worshipped is not pleased and happy that he should be worshipped. Nor does he call to his own worship. So this therefore cannot be, cannot be called a tagut. The prophets and messengers, the righteous people who are upon tawheed. And who hate this and dislike this and call away from this. Then we don't say about them that they are, that they are tawagid, you know, false deities. And they will free themselves on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. From the worship that was given to them. But as for those, like we see the people who are pleased that they are worshipped and the limits are exceeded, or who actually call to them, you know, for, them, for themselves to be worshipped, this then is a ta'ud. So the point being that merely saying, La ilaha illallah, that will not benefit until it comprises rejection, absolute rejection of everything which is worshipped besides Allah. This means that you believe that first of all, that thing or that being or that person does not have any right to be worshipped, first of all. Why? Because it does not create, it does not give life, it does not take life, it does not provide sustenance, it does not alternate the night and the day, it does not regulate the, the, the creation. It has none of these qualities. How therefore can it be worshipped? So first of all, because it has no right to be worshipped to begin with. And secondly, that when it is worshipped, it is being worshipped in falsehood. Its worship is batil, it's falsehood. So number one, it doesn't deserve to be worshipped. And secondly, as it is worshipped, it is being worshipped in falsehood, in, upon batil, not upon haq. So this is the tawut and a person's iman and a person's declaration of this kalima is not accepted up until it contains the two pillars. The first pillar is nafi, nafi which is negation, which is to deny that anything besides Allah has the right to be worshipped. And the second pillar is ithbat, affirmation, which is to affirm that worship belongs only to Allah rightfully. And so this is the meaning, therefore, in the verse that we mentioned, وَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِالطَّاغُوتِ وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ إِسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْبُثْقَادِ It's in Surah Al-Baqarah, right after Ayatul Qursi. Um, we see also, Shaykh al-Islam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, rahimahullah, he mentions a very, very important point in his uh, book, Six places in the seerah, six benefits from the seerah. Uh, he says that when we look at the seerah of the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, we see that when he first of all said to them, worship Allah, believe in Allah, worship Allah, 
there was no issue. And the mushrikeen of Mecca, the pagans, they said, yes, we have you that. We will worship Allah. There was no issue with just saying, worship Allah. But as soon as he began to explain to them the falsehood of worshipping other deities, and he reviled, basically he spoke of their deities, and said, your deities are false and are not worthy of being worshipped, and he began to speak against them. This is what brought the enmity and the hatred towards him. Right? It wasn't that he, that he said, worship Allah, like speaking in affirmative, worship Allah, worship Allah alone, because they will say, we, we worship Allah alone. But when he said that the worship of, for example, Allah and Al-Uzza and Wad and Suwa and so on and so forth, all the various deities that the, that the Arabs had, that they are batil and their worship is batil and they, they, you know, they do not speak, do not hear, they do not you know, respond and they are all these things explaining, giving rational reasons for the, for the falsehood of worshipping them and reviling them and criticizing them and explain to, explain to them that this is Bati what you do. This is then when the enmity, when the enmity began to appear. And so likewise, our da'wah, when we explain, it applies to Tawheed and Shirk. We don't just say we call it Tawheed, but we falsify Shirk. We falsify Shirk. And you see the wisdom in this because if you were to go to everybody, every group of Muslims present today and you say worship Allah alone, they'll say yes we do, thank you very much, we worship Allah alone. And it's not until you tell them that calling upon Abdul Qadir Jilani is shirk which Allah will not forgive. And this is batil what you are doing. And that calling upon so and so or calling upon so and so or this, and it's not until you explain to them that this is falsehood and you are worshiping that Tawheed itself becomes clear. Now the meaning of Tawheed now becomes clear. Without that, the meaning of Tawheed becomes obscure. It remains obscure. It's like if you went to a Christian and said, worship God alone. He would say, yes, we worship God alone. God to us is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all God. We worship God alone. What's your problem? Likewise, if you, and this applies not only to Tawheed and Shirk, but to everything. Sunnah and Bid'ah. Sunnah and Bid'ah. You might go to an Ash'ari and say, Allah is above the heavens, above His throne. You'll say, yes, we believe that. We believe Allah is above, above, he's above everything. What He really means is Allah is above everything in His rank and His status. Meaning conceptually speaking. Not that Allah is above His throne, above the heavens. Right? So if you speak in general vague terms and say, just speak in affirmations and you say, yes, Allah is above the throne, they will say, yes, we believe Allah is above the throne. But it's not until you say and explain the falsehood and you say that to limit Allah's ulu, His Highness, just to, you know, uh, His status and His rank and to deny that He Himself is above His throne, this is batil and this is the statement of the Jahmiyyah. And the Salaf declared them to be disbelievers for rejecting Allah's ulu, Allah's highness and aboveness above His creation. So again, you see the same problem. If you speak only in generalities and just affirmations, without explaining the falsehood which opposes it, then you will not have you know, made the truth clear from, from, from the falsehood. So that applies to the within shirk and likewise sunnah and bid'ah. So the point being then, with respect to this kalima, la ilaha illallah, when a person says, la ilaha illallah, there is none which has a right to be worshipped except Allah, then he must reject all other deities. Which means that in his heart he believes that the worship of other things besides Allah is futile and false. It's not the truth. And secondly, that other things besides Allah do not have the right to be worshipped. When he sincerely believes that in his heart, alongside saying, La ilaha illallah, then this now his iman is valid. His iman is sound. And so here then we see Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, he comments upon this ayah that we read from Surah Al Baqarah. And he says regarding this ayah, Ay man al andad wal awthan wa ma yadu ilayhi shaytan min ibadati kullima yu'bad min dunillah wa wahadallah. فَعَبَدَهُ وَحْدَهُ وَشَهِدَ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ فَهُوَ هُوَ فَقَدْ 
Whoever uh, The, the meaning of this verse is whoever من خلع الأنداد والأوثان whoever uh, freed himself or took off and removed from himself the andad which are the things which are made rivals to Allah in his worship and the awthan which are the idols which are worshipped and likewise whatever shaitan invites a person of worshipping others besides Allah so whoever abandons all of that and then he singles out Allah in worship and he says, he testifies that none has a right to be worshipped except he, then he has grabbed hold of the strongest handhold. So this now is the strongest handhold. What is the strongest handhold of Iman? It is this, it is to worship Allah alone and to reject all other deities. This then is the strongest handhold by which a servant holds, you know, he, he is steadfast with Allah Azza wa Jal. And so therefore, Al-Urwatul Wufqa, the scholars have explained that one of the labels, one of the titles of this kalima is, it is Al-Urwatul Wufqa, the kalima La ilaha illallah. There are numerous, when we look in the Quran, there are numerous titles or ways which this kalima has been spoken of. Kalimatul uh, Taqwa, the word of piety, Kalimatul Ikhlas, the word of sincerity and purity. Because by it, a person worships only Allah. And Al-Urwatul Wuthqa, the strongest handhold. Uh, these are various titles that we see in the Quran which are given to this kalima. So, the point being here then, the benefit that we take from this uh, particular hadith then, is that the kalima La ilaha illallah, it makes a person's blood and wealth inviolable, become sacred. And secondly, that a condition of this kalima is that a person must reject and disbelieve in every deity besides Allah. This moves us to the next uh, hadith, hadith number eight. And this hadith is from Abdullah bin Umar, radiallahu anhu. قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بعثت بالسيف بين يدي الساعة حتى يعبد حتى يعبد الله وحده لا شريك له بأن يقول لا إله إلا الله رواه الإمام أحمد وصححه الألباني رحم الله. so within the hadith then the, 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 the translation of the hadith is from Abdullah bin Umar رضي الله عنه that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم he said I have been sent be safe with the sword prior to the hour. Just prior to the hour, the final hour. Until Allah is worshipped alone without any partners. In that they, meaning the people, say, La ilaha illallah. So, what is the point of evidence from this hadith? Well, there are numerous benefits from this hadith, first of all, in general. The first one is that in this hadith is a proof that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is Khatam al That he is the seal of the Prophets. He's the final Prophet. Why? Because he said, I've been sent just prior to the hour. Prior to the final hour. And so this indicates that this is the last messenger, obviously, from this, from the, from this wording. And that before him, between him and the hour, there is no other, other Prophet or messenger. As for Isa salam that he is not coming as a new messenger. Right? He is coming back to fulfill that which uh, Allah has designated for him. And he will come and he will come as, as a Muslim. And he will be following the Sharia of the, of, of the Muslims. So he is not coming as a, another uh, prophet. So between the messenger of Allah and the hour, there is no other prophet. So he is Khatman Nabi'i. Secondly, this hadith itself indicates the closeness of the hour. Because again, from the same wording, just prior to the hour. And this indicates the closeness of, of the hour. And we find in another hadith which is similar, 
the messenger of Allah he said بُعِثْتُ أَنَا وَالسَّاعَةُ كَهَاتَيْنِ and he uh, he basically put his uh, middle finger and the one next to it and he said I've been sent I and the hour have been sent like this meaning the closeness of himself and the final hour so that's the second benefit the third benefit is that we see in this hadith the legislation of jihad in the path of Allah Azza wa Jal and this obviously because we spoke about this in the previous lesson as well because there are numerous hadith which pertain to this issue of the legislation of jihad and we said that this legislation of jihad it follows the rule of law it follows the rule of law meaning it is not haphazard and chaotic and undertaken by individuals and bandits and renegades and revolutionaries and things like that it follows the rule of law and we said that there are obviously conditions to jihad and the jihad is only undertaken by the rulers of the Muslims who have you know, uh, the, the, the government and they have the, the, the power, the rule and they have an army and so on and so forth and this is how jihad is undertaken uh, in the Sharia and in the previous lesson we also explained uh, with respect to some of the shubuhat of, of jihad we said that all nations, you know, they, they fight for whatever objective they fight for and when you look in history you see, history is full of one civilization taking over another one, and another one coming and taking over that one, and then one nation dominating another nation, and another one dominating this nation. There's always issues of wealth and power and economy and so on and so forth, and you know, they go and take their culture, they go and take... This, this is just part and parcel of humanity. Nations transgress and they, you know... And when you look at nations, what they fight for, you know, it's for, it's for wealth, it's for resources... It's for worldly reasons and um, others sometimes they fight for, uh, they believe that they have special rights over other people and they believe that somehow they are special and they, they fight on that basis. And other, so there's all sorts of reasons why people, why people, you know, they, 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 they fight. And we said that the ruler, the Muslim rulers, that jihad was legislated uh, for them in order to protect the means of peaceful preaching to protect the da'wah and to ensure that the da'wah reaches people without any hindrance without any hindrance and where there's any hindrance where there's any unjust hindrance then uh, jihad is legislated to remove that hindrance so that people are able to hear without any hindrance without any uh, problems the conveyance of the message and so we spoke about that in, 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 the, in the previous lesson. You can refer back to you know, that lesson for the, for the various issues. But the point being here is that this, this hadith clearly indicates that the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that he was sent with da'wah and tabligh and likewise with jihad. And that Islam has come with a balance in moderation between two or three different ways. We mentioned them as well between the way of the extremists amongst the Yahud. You find amongst the Yahud these extremists who basically they follow the, what, they, what they claim or what they say is in the Torah of you know, annihilating all of the enemies and killing them or wiping them out and destroying them and every last man, woman, child, donkey and everything. No mercy, no nothing. You don't call them to the truth. You don't call them to Tawheed. You just wipe them out. Right? This, this is... You, there are amongst the Yahud extremists, not all of them, extremists, who take that reading from the Torah and they write books on this. And they justify the killing of all of their, anyone who's even deemed to be an enemy. Right? So that means children, because they believe that that child is going to grow up to, so it's okay to kill children, three-year-old children. You know, pregnant people, pregnant women with children, it's okay to let them die. Because of this reasoning that they have, right? This is... You know, complete lack of mercy. It's just, and then you don't preach either. You don't preach the truth, because again, because these people, the extremists, they believe that they are special. They are chosen. All right? That's an extreme. Another extreme, as what the Nasara, what the Christians say, or what they claim, they say that you know we, we, we turn the other cheek. We turn the other cheek when you when you when you uh, are aggressive or violent towards us. The history 
doesn't really show that because the history shows that you know nobody even slapped your cheek and then you went to the Americas and wiped out hundreds of millions of people in the name of in the, for the glory of Jesus the glory of God you went to the Africas and you wiped out how many there you went to Australia wiped out the Aborigines you know all in the name of the glory of God and you know uh, Jesus right nobody slapped your cheek but let's let's just accept that you know this is true this is what you say that we don't engage in violence we just preach the gospel right this is something that doesn't work either because we just preach and someone kills you and you know oppresses you and you just say slap this cheek now that's not going to work for that one that's not going to work to call people people are going to walk all over you and tread all over you it doesn't make sense that's the, that's the second way which is the other extreme and then the third way is the way of the people who are greedy for power and, and wealth and so on and so forth, resources, riches, and they just bomb nations and destroy nations. And, you know, uh, all of this is ulu. This is ulu upon the earth. This is seeking highness upon the earth. And this is prohibited. Uh, in the Quran, it's prohibited to seek fasad and ulu upon the earth. So Islam has come with that which is just and moderate and balanced which is da'wah to the people you call da'wah to you call them to the truth with wisdom argumentation good preaching and then if you face hindrances and aggression and violence then Allah has legislated jihad to remove these obstacles so that people can, can continue to hear the truth without any obstacles and so if falsehood can be spread with with you know with, with fighting then truth can be spread with fighting as well, right? So when you look at it from that angle, there's nothing to be, there's no, there's no you know, a person shouldn't be naive about these issues. So that was the uh, third benefit that we take from it. Also from this hadith, we also take another benefit as well, that it's clearly explained the meaning of Tawheed. Because in the hadith, the Messenger of Allah said, بُعِثْتُ بِسَيْفْ بَيْنَ يَدِي سَعَ I've been sent with the sword prior to the hour. Until they worship Allah alone without any partners. So this is similar to the previous hadith. Worship Allah alone without any partners. And then this wording here is, a, is essentially an explanation of what he said at the end. Because at the end he said, بِأَنْ يَقُولُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ In that the people should say, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ so La ilaha illallah is explained by worshipping Allah alone without any partners. So this is a tafsir or it's the meaning of uh, ibadah and tawheed and the kalima, all of them they come together and have you know, an explanatory uh, an explanation. Uh, the explanation of each one you know, goes together. And finally, the saying La ilaha illallah again it makes the blood and the wealth to be inviolable. Same as what we mentioned in the previous hadith. So again the shahid, the point of evidence, how does this hadith indicate the greatness of the kalima La ilaha illallah and the fadl of La ilaha illallah? It is because that a just, a war, the, 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 the right to wage war has been legislated for the purpose of this kalima. And also uh, that uh, the inviolability of blood and wealth on the basis of this kalimah. We move now to the next hadith. And this hadith, it continues and is connected to the previous hadiths. And in this hadith number nine, from Ibn Mas'ud, from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who said, La yahillu damum ri'in, la yahillu damum ri'in, from Ibn Mas'ud, who said, from the Prophet, who said, the blood of a Muslim man is not permissible. The one who testifies that there is none which has a right to be worshipped is not permissible, is not lawful, except by one of three things. zani, meaning the adulterer, the married fornicator, the married fornicator. 
وَالنَّفْسُ بِالنَّفْسِ Which means retribution for murder. For murder. And thirdly, وَالتَّارِكُ لِدِينِهِ The one who abandons his deen. And الْمُفَارِكُ لِلْجِمَعَةِ The one who separates from the jama'ah. So here now we are speaking about the kalima la ilaha illallah. In the previous hadith was mentioned how this makes the blood and the wealth to be inviolable, to be sacred. <coughs> However, there are obviously situations in which the in the Islamic Sharia, and we have to make it clear here that these rules and laws do not apply here. They do not apply here. And we are not calling for them to be applied here. But we are discussing here in this hadith a legal issue, a legal issue of jurisprudence. We are speaking about what Islam and the Sharia, what it contains of rulings, and we are simply explaining those rulings. And this is a legal, juristic discussion, and it's got nothing to do with calling for the Sharia in this country or anything like that at all. So, as we said that it is not lawful for the Muslims here to start implementing these affairs because these affairs require a Muslim rulership, a Muslim body and they are not applicable in, in, in these countries and a person cannot take these affairs into their own hands. The scholars, they actually warn against this. There are fatawa from the likes of Sheikh Al-Fawzan and others and they say this is not permissible for anyone to you know, engage in the likes of these affairs. So discussing these affairs from a, from a juristic uh, jurisprudence point of view then in the Islamic Sharia, then there are situations in which a person's life can be taken. And that life is taken for reasons of protecting the rest of the society from corruption and <coughs> oppression and in order to uh, limit the uh, increase of crime and violence and you know, other such things. And so these are exemplary punishments and deterrence, and also they establish justice as well. So, in this hadith then, we've read the hadith, and first of all we said that the asal with a Muslim, as per the previous hadith that we discussed, the asal with a Muslim is that his blood and his wealth and his honor is inviolable. It is inviolable by virtue of this kalima. And however, there are certain things which permit the blood of a Muslim to be taken. And so, one of those, the first one that is mentioned is Az-Zina Ba'dul Ihsan A married person who commits, who basically commits adultery And the second one is killing someone whose blood is inviolable And this is by way of retribution, the law of retribution You murder someone, can't, you, know, you, you murder someone on purpose, deliberately and so, you know, there, there is a law of qisas, of retribution. So a person's blood can be taken in that situation as well. And the third one, tarqud din bil kufr billah, billahi ta'ala. When a person, he abandons uh, Islam and uh, apostatizes. And likewise, some scholars, they mention, because there are other things which by which a person becomes an apostate, like for example, abandoning the salah from the... Among those scholars who hold that abandonment of the salah is, 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 is complete disbelief. So likewise that person. And all, also would, you know, someone who denies something which is known to be from the religion. Right? He makes juhud of something which is known to be in the religion. Someone comes and says, well, I don't believe in the punishment of the grave. And then after hujjah, after argumentation, after debate, after establishing the proof, you know, he makes juhud after, he's, after he knows he then denies, right? This now is kufr. This is a major kufr. So juhud of anything that's you know, established in the, in, in the religion. And likewise, those people who separate from the jama'ah, like the khawarij, like the bughat, like those who rebel and revolt, and they fight against the authorities and the Muslims, then they are to be fought against. And in the course of that fighting, then they can be killed. They can be killed. So, the, so these are categories of people which in the Islamic Sharia the taking of blood is, is permissible. Um, so then there are some texts in that regard, man badla, the texts which are used as evidence, man badla deenahu faqtuluh, the one who alters his religion, then faqtuluh, 
رواه البخاري من أتاكم وأمركم جميع على رجل واحد يريد أن يشق عساكم أو يفرق بين جماعتكم فقتلوه Whoever comes to you whilst your affair is united behind a single man he wants to split your ranks and wants to separate your jama'ah then kill him. And this is a person who comes or a group that come along and they want to basically now split the Muslims contend against the ruler you know sever the unity this person in this hadith can be can be killed. The point being that in the Sharia, there are numerous categories of people which, for which the Sharia has allowed the taking of their life. And when you look in all of these instances, you see that there are wisdoms and objectives behind them. Some of them are very clear, like for example, to maintain political stability, uh, unity in, in the nation. Right? Treason, to, you know, to try and rebel and revolt and to split the nation. This is, this is treason, this is treasonous. And all nations have laws of treason because nations wouldn't function you know, unless, unless these laws were in place to discourage people from basically breaking the peace and creating chaos and you know, allowing bloodshed and violence to spread. Right? Likewise, uh, the, the person who becomes an apostate, again in an Islamic country, right? he's basically, this is a, a, an announcement of war. This is because in Islam, you know, we believe in the hereafter. In the hereafter, there is paradise and hellfire. And when a person announces his, you know, apostasy, then he is basically what he's doing. He's saying that you know, this deen is false. <coughs> and by saying that the deen is false, he's now drawing people and encouraging people to enter the fire with him. This is considered an issue of national security. Now, if you want to argue this is wrong, then you have to argue the issue is not about whether <coughs> nations have the right to you know, uh, impose capital punishment because all nations, whether they admit it or not, they, you know, like as, as we mentioned before, that nations kill their subjects for reasons of political, secu you know, political uh, security, national security. Some do it openly, like the Chinese will execute if you oppose the social order, you'll be executed. They do openly. Others, like in Russia, for example, they do it subtly, but they give the message. So, you know, 29, 30 politicians, you know, mysteriously died in the past two years because they're saying things about the government and they mysteriously die, right? So this is not open, but they're giving the message clearly that, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. And other countries, they do it in a very, very sneaky and slimy way where they basically will arrange a car accident or something else or, you know, a person will... And there's, there's all sorts of ways that they have, engineering heart attacks and so on and so forth. All these ways and means that they have, they have available, right? And they do it in a very sneaky way to make like an accident. So without being naive and ignorant, these things actually take place. Nations do get rid of people because they are a threat to national security, right? So people do this. And in other cases, there are clearly laws of treason. So in Islam, again, we are speaking from a juristic, jurisprudence point of view. We're not saying go out there and kill apostates. This is, this is not lawful in this, in, it's not allowed in this country. We are explaining the, the, the juristic, uh, jurisprudence reasoning behind some of these laws because there are reasons and objectives behind these laws. And so because the hereafter of people, you are putting that in jeopardy, and you are undermining the order because the very foundation of the state is, is, is Islam, is Tawheed, belief in the hereafter, justice in the hereafter. When you undermine all of that, then you are undermining the stability of the country. You are basically calling people to your, your disbelief. And the whole Islamic, you know, the, 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 the nation is founded upon these uh, beliefs. So it's like basically announcing a war. And it falls into, in, into like, uh, has an aspect of treason uh, to it. So anyway, this is uh, hadith number nine. And it relates to, again, the issue of inviolability. And the issues in which it is permitted in the sharia, where someone's blood can be taken. Likewise with adultery. Uh, one of the things that we should understand, that when we, when we look into the sharia, and the sharia, especially these laws you find that the Sharia makes it extremely, extremely difficult for a person to commit these actions. 
right? To commit adultery is something that in a, in a Muslim society is very, very difficult. Why is that? It's because, first of all, women are encouraged, they, they're not allowed to travel alone, right, without a male mahram. Secondly, like open free mixing is not really allowed. Thirdly, you know, when you, you seek permission when you enter homes, you know, you're advised to lower the gaze, you're advised to... The, there's so many things that you see in the Sharia that the Sharia makes the commission of a sin to be extremely difficult in the first place. To drink alcohol, right? You're not allowed to sit in the place where it's being served, right? Everyone who has anything to do with it is cursed. The one who squashes the grapes, the one who uh, carries it, the one who sells it, the one who... Every, every person who's involved in the whole process, right? So, in the Sharia... There are so many obstacles to the sin being committed. Now for a person then to go out of his way and to go and commit that sin, then a very uh, severe punishment has been specified to act as a deterrent. Right? And very, very strict conditions even have been specified for those you know, sins. Like for example, the issue of adultery. Four witnesses who have to see the act of penetration. If not, then their testimony is rejected. They will get lashed. And the testimony is forever rejected. Very, very strict conditions. So, uh, you know, the, these are issues that when looked into again, we, we mention all the time that these are some of the shubahat, the doubts that people bring uh, about the uh, sharia. And they try to divorce the sharia. Um, they try to look at them from the point of view of their secular, uh, atheistic, um, you know, Philosophies, which you can't really do that. You can't do that. You have to look at Islam, starting with the assumption. You might not agree with the assumption, but you have to start with what, what Islam. Uh, in, in Islam, there is an akhirah, there is a hereafter, there is uh, stability in terms of uh, the society. There are rights that people have, material rights, and those material rights are linked to the family, and the family is protected. You know, by uh, prohibition of all the things that break up families and destroy families. So, because there's a lot packaged together, there's inheritance, there's material rights, all within the family unit, right? So, there's material rights involved here. There's rights of honor, the erb, and there's mal, and there's nafs, right? All these things are packaged together, and so many of these laws that you see and, and punishments, capital or corporal. They all work together in order to protect the people's rights and to you know, maintain a, a stable society. So this thing you look at when you study and you look at the, the, these issues in the books of fiqh and the books of jurisprudence, you see that the scholars give these kinds of explanations and reasons behind all of this. And so you can't now come and take a secular belief where you believe there is no deity, there is no creator, there is no resurrection, there is no hereafter, there is no paradise, there is no hellfire... And, you know, life is just about enjoyment and whatever else and freedom and licentiousness. And, you know, there are, there are no, there are no um, you know, uh, firm family touch. You know, and they break all of this down. You can't take that and then apply, then say, okay, now we're going to judge your law for apostasy and your law for adultery and your law for this. And, you know, in light of our, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's not, it's not, this is not correct. The issue comes down, is there a creator, is there a paradise, is there a hellfire, is there a resurrection? And once you accept that, then the rest of it follows from that. Right? So, that's hadith number 9. We move to hadith number 10. So yeah, I was actually going to give, before we move on, I was going to give one simple example to, that fits in with what I mentioned. If you notice, sometimes they have these... Uh, Fines, ridiculously high fines. If you get caught littering, you will be fined up to a thousand pounds. Right? Have you ever noticed and seen some? some you might have seen some of these where there's a ridiculously high fine for something which is just like really, you know, you know. You think, well, who, who have I harmed that I should be fined one thousand pounds? Right? The point being that if, you, if, if you're walking on a street and you see that the council has put bins literally next to every pillar and you know, 
there's, there's no reason for you to actually drop litter on the floor. Because within 30 seconds, a minute to walking distance, you can find that there's a bin available. Right? It, the councils have made it very difficult for you, you know, not to find a bin. Right? So the more there are these things available to you that prevent you from committing the crime, then really the more you should be punished. The more you should be punished. It makes sense. Whereas if, you know, there's no incentive at all, there's no bins at all, and, you know, then, okay, that you can understand. So that principle, the, the, I wanted to use that to illustrate the principle that Islam makes it extremely, extremely difficult for you to fall into sin. Right, to commit adultery, or to steal, for example, or to, you know, whatever else. There, there's so many things that Islam enjoins that prohibits the likes of those things. So if a person now goes out of his way to break all of those barriers one by one, all the way to the end, then, you know, this requires a severe type of punishment to deter any, uh, anyone else from having the same type of boldness and courage. You know, that was the point I wanted to mention. Let's move to the next. We have hadith number... Uh, hadith number 10 and in this hadith it explains how the statement la ilaha illallah is the most excellent of dhikr and jabir bin abdullah radiyallahu anhu qala sami'tu rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul afdalu dhikr la ilaha illallah wa afdalu dua alhamdulillah from Jabir bin Abdullah who said that I heard the messenger of Allah say the most excellent of dhikr of remembrance is la ilaha illallah and the, the best of dua is alhamdulillah the best invocation is alhamdulillah so upon this number of benefits first of all clearly the point of evidence in the hadith for us is that it clearly states that La ilaha illallah is the best of dhikr. The best of dhikr. So this is the virtue of the kalima La ilaha illallah. And we, in fact we see that in another, another hadith as well, Afdalu dua, dua'u yawmi arafah. The best dua is the dua of the day of arafah. And the best of what you say, of what I and the Prophet say, from those who came before me, is La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika This is now a similar hadith. That the best thing that the Prophet said and the Prophets before him said was La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika And likewise it's narrated from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma that he said Ahabu kalimatin illallahi ta'ala La ilaha illallah La yaqbalullah amalan illa biha the most beloved kalima to Allah is La ilaha illallah. He does not accept any action without it. Meaning no action is accepted without tawheed. Without worshipping Allah and disbelieving in all deities besides Him. And so also from this we see uh, that... The fadl, the excellence of this kalima is to say it all of it. La ilaha illallah. Not like the Sufis where first of all one will say la ilaha and someone else will say illallah and then they'll shorten it even further and then they'll say Allah, Allah, Allah and then they'll shorten it even further and just say who, the pronoun, who, who. This is the way, this is the dhikr of the Sufis and this is playing with the religion and being foolish. And behind these actions are certain doctrines, certain evil doctrines behind them, philosophical doctrines. Rather the one who says, La ilaha illallah, with the meaning that we established, then this makes it the best of dhikr. And likewise in the hadith is the statement of Alhamdulillah, which is the best of dua. So if you want to make a dua, then you begin by praising Allah. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. And by sending salat upon the messenger of Allah Sallallahu and so this is like the best and the most complete form of dua by which Allah Zawajal, He answers the dua. This takes us to the next hadith and the final hadith and we will finish with this one inshallah ta'ala. And this is that La ilaha illallah, this is hadith number 11, uh, that La ilaha illallah is the best by which a person seeks aid from Allah. 
in times of difficulty, in times of hardship. From Umm Salama radiallahu anha, قالت استيقظ النبي من الليل وهو يقول لا إله إلا الله ماذا أنزل الليلة من الفتن ماذا أنزل الليلة من الفتن ماذا أنزل من الخزائن So he says uh, in the hadith that from Umm Salama who said رضي الله عنها that the messenger of Islam he woke up one night he woke up and he said لا إله إلا الله what tribulations have descended this night and what treasures have descended this night the one who will go out and waken the people from their apartments how many people there are kam min kasiyatin fid dunya ariyatun yawm al qiyamah how many people are clothed in this life yet they will be naked in the hereafter so in this hadith, Rawah al-Bukhari, al-Bukhari, there are a number of things in this hadith, important things. First of all, this hadith indicates the excellence of La ilaha illallah in the sense that whenever there are hardships and calamities which descend, that a person says La ilaha illallah as the messenger of Allah, he said, because he perceived the descending of calamities. And when these affairs, when there are great and mighty affairs, so to say, La ilaha illallah. Secondly, we see that the Messenger of Allah he informed about tribulations descending and coming, and plenty of tribulations. Thirdly, we see in this hadith an encouragement for the people to perform qiyam and to strive in worship during the night. Fourthly, we see that, the, that in this um, hadith, the Messenger of Allah he ordered his family and others to go out to make salah, to pray and to increase in ibadah and to encourage them in praying following the example of Ismail um, in which we say uh, which we see in the Quran وَكَانَ يَأْمُرُ أَحْلَهُ بِالصَّلَاةِ وَالزَّكَاةِ وَكَانَ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِ مَرْضِيًّا that he used to command his family with prayer and with charity with zakah and he was ple- he was one who Allah was pleased with him. He was pleased with his his Lord was pleased with him. So that's the fourth benefit. The fifth benefit is that um, we find that in this hadith is an indication of the women being advised not to uh, to make tabarruj, meaning to make a display, to make a display, and so we know that we see in another hadith there are two groups from my from the there are two groups from the people of the hellfire which I have never seen, which I have not yet seen, and they are and he mentioned amongst them women who are clothed but they are naked, until the end of the hadith. So at the end of that first hadith that we mentioned, come in kasiyatin fi dunya, ariyatun yom al qiyamah, an indication of absence of tabarruj for women. Now there is in this uh, hadith a very very important lesson, a tremendous lesson. We finish with this inshallah ta'ala. And this hadith as you can clearly see, it shows saying la ilaha illallah in times of hardships and calamities. And the best example of that in the Quran is the example, is the example of Yunus alayhi salam when we see, as, as is mentioned in the Quran, where he fled from his people, he was ordered uh, to call them, and he was anticipating that the punishment might, might come upon them, but he left angry. And as we see in the Quran, he mentions here about Dhunnun, which is Yunus salam. When he went, he left angry and he thought that we would not, you know, have, have power over him. And then the, as the story goes, that he went on a ship and then he was tossed out of the ship and he was swallowed by a whale. 
And whilst he was in that darkness, he thought he was going to perish. What did he say? What did he do? He said, فَنَادَى فِي الظُّلُمَاتِ In the darkness, he called out, he said, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنْتِ سُبْحَانَكَ إِنِّي كُنْتُ مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ So he mentioned the kalima, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ He made mention of Tawheed, the greatness of Allah, his right of being worshipped. This kalima incorporates all of that, his rububiyyah, his names and attributes, his right of being worshipped. He called out with that kalima, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَكَ how free are you of imperfections? I was the one who was Allah, I was wrong. And then what did Allah say? He said, We responded to him. And we saved him from his anxiety. First we saved the believers. In this, it shows you how Tawheed removes calamities. Tawheed erases calamities, all types of calamities. Look at the calamity that Yunus Islam was in. How can what calamity is there where you are in the ocean, the darkness of the ocean, swallowed by a whale in the darknesses? What prospect have you got of thinking that you are going to survive? So he made this dua, and Allah he responded to him and he saved him. Now the point that we take from this is that Tawheed removes calamities. Tawheed rectifies societies. There are people present today, ignorant people, misguided people. And what's scary is that these people have spent six years in Islamic institutions like the Medina University. And they come out and they say that there's too much focus on Tawheed. That people speak as if you know, focus on Tawheed and your affairs will be put aright. As if by magic, use the word magic. This is not logical, this is not realistic. These are the words that these people, this, this, this jahil, this individual uses. That to speak like this, to speak like what you've read, what you've heard from this ayah in the Quran, to speak with this type of language, that Tawheed removes calamities, that Tawheed rectifies societies, that you describe this as this is magical thinking, this, this is kufr. To, to, to speak with this type of language about Allah, His Tawheed, and the effects of Tawheed, and Allah's laws in His creation, right? to speak like this, this is the utmost jahl that there, that, that there can be. And it is also a statement of kufr as well, to speak like, to, to speak like this. To say that this is magical thinking, and that this is not logical, and this is not realistic. Right? This, is, this is the height of ignorance and foolishness to speak like this. But there are people who actually speak like this. After spending years and years and years in Islamic institutions. Where you are supposed to have studied Tawheed. And you are supposed to have studied the issues of Aqidah and so on and so forth. So this shows that uh, you know, the hearts are in between the fingers of Ar-Rahman. And that we should fear for ourselves that a person, you know, that because of a sickness in his heart and a disease in his heart, that a person, you know, his heart can be stripped of knowledge and understanding. And, you know, his heart can be turned towards another direction because of, you know, maybe there's a sickness in his heart. Maybe he's seeking fame. Maybe he's seeking fortune. Maybe he's, you know, not sincere. And then he's looking for these things. He's reading other books and, you know, books of... Uh, philosophers and activists and politicians and you know uh, and picking up things from what they are writing and then the knowledge is then erased from his heart and then he starts speaking with that nonsense and then he forgets what he knew before a person forgets what the knowledge he had before these things can happen to people and that's why uh, it is upon us to be fearful of this and in fact there's a beautiful point mentioned by uh, Sheikh Saleh Al Sheikh at the end of his commentary on At-Tahawiyah uh, uh, where Imam At-Tahawi makes dua to Allah you know, that he keeps us that this is our creed we stick to it we abandon anyone who doesn't follow it we ask Allah to keep his firm upon this and to keep our hearts firm upon this he made dua after the end of the creed and then Sheikh Saleh explains that you know, this shows that the issues of belief they are in the heart and they in turn affect a person's actions 
and that knowledge in the heart can be erased. That what you once knew, it can be erased, it can disappear. And this shows the great importance of constantly learning. This is the point that he's making, that constantly sticking and learning the affairs of Tawheed, constantly speaking about the affairs of Tawheed. Because look, this is the example I've just given you. How can a person, a graduate, spent six years in the city of Medina can come out and speak with jahl like this. How is this fathomable that a person speaks with such jahl? This shows that knowledge that a person once possessed can be taken away. Can be taken away. And so therefore, what this hadith, hadith number 11, uh, the benefit that we take from this is the greatness of la ilaha illallah, how it removes calamities, how it rectifies society, it rectifies the person, his heart, you know. And uh, this is from the greatest virtues of the kalima, la ilaha illallah. And that also we are fearful of an evil end, we are fearful of the loss of knowledge, we are fearful of the turning of our hearts. All these things a person, a servant, should never ever feel secure from the plan of Allah Azza wa Jal. Because he is balanced between two things. On the one hand, he does not feel confident and secure. He fears the plan of Allah. And on, on the other hand, he does not despair. He does not despair of Allah's mercy. So he has, he doesn't have aman, which is to feel secure and safe. I will never be misguided. I know Tawheed. I understand Tawheed. How strong is my iman? I make all this ibadah. You know, this, this, is, this is guru. This is now deception. You're deceiving yourself. So a person has to have fear. And at the same time, a person should not have yas, which is despair, to despair of Allah's mercy. Rather, a person has this, and a person has that. He balances them together. This is how a believer should be. So, inshallah, we'll conclude with that, uh, with that as our final point. And uh, we'll continue with hadith number 12 onwards, inshallah ta'ala, in the next lesson. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Thank you.